a Podcast One production. An assessment can be, for some, one of the most difficult parts of developing your emotional intelligence, whether that be at work or at home or wherever, but it's a really special and crucial part of it to really understand, well, how well do I express my feelings in comparison to others? How self-aware am I? I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, as well as 11 of the top ASX listed companies. And this is Fast Track. If you're in the office long enough, you're likely to hear someone accuse someone else of not being emotionally intelligent. Or the inverse, that they are a great leader because they have emotional intelligence. A lot has been written and discussed about emotional intelligence since Daniel Goleman highlighted it as an essential tool for living and for working. So in this episode, I want to get to the heart of what it is, why we need it, how we measure it, and most importantly, how we really build this muscle. Joining me to answer all these questions is Dr. Ben Palmer, Ben is the founder and CEO of Genos International, a consultancy specialist provider of emotional intelligence services. Ben, I think you'd have to be living under a rock not to hear about emotional intelligence. How did you first come across the term? Was it while you were Mm. doing your PhD? It was. I was, in fact, uh, looking for a PhD topic. I think it was since 1997. Came across Daniel Goleman's book, who who you mentioned. It's now the most widely read social science book in the world, and uh, fell in love with the topic. And so, um, yeah, I started uh, looking and and thinking about uh, emotional intelligence and how it can be measured, how it can be developed, those sorts of things. So so what was it about emotional intelligence that sparked your interest? Mm. I think a couple of things. One, back in 1997, you know, your emotions were still kind of checked in with your own coat on the way into work and picked up on on the way out. It was certainly... I think this mindset in corporate Australia and indeed perhaps uh, more broadly around the world that, you know, emotions really got in the way of things at work. And uh, I think that those myths were very much at the beginning of being debunked back in those days. And that's sort of what piqued my interest in it. And I think too, not knowing at the time, but knowing a little bit later into it, um, that old age adage for me, you study what you need to know sort of came about. I was going to ask, were you a particularly emotionally intelligent mm. graduate? <laughs> I'd, I would say not emotionally intelligent, more emotional, I think is how I'd describe it. And in interesting ways, you know, I, I think reflecting back now, for me, expressing how I feel effectively was something that I wasn't very good at and something that um, I was noticing really getting in the way uh, of life in general. And so, um, but these these things came about a bit later in the journey, if that ma- that makes sense. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So let's take back a step. And what is emotional intelligence? Mm. Well, as the name suggests, it's a, a set of skills, if you like, to do with emotions. How well we perceive and understand emotions in ourselves. How well we're able to read uh, emotions in others and demonstrate empathy. How well we're able to express how we feel. Um, reason with emotions and manage them both within ourselves and others. And that definition and the importance of that, I think, comes to life more when you think about the role emotions play in our life. Emotions serve many, many functions, but one is to, um, if you like, shape the way we think and make decisions 
The other is, of course, uh, they play a large role in our behaviour. If you think about it, emotions show up in your tone of voice, in your facial expressions and in your body language. And because of that, they're very fundamental to how you connect, communicate, collaborate with others. And interestingly for workplaces, emotions obviously play a large role in individual and indeed collective performance. You know, think about it for yourself. Your staff undoubtedly perform best when they feel valued, cared for, consulted, informed, um, confident, calm, versus, say, anxious, concerned, worried, stressed, by way of example. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's where the importance of it starts to come out. Okay, so if I've got emotions, the emotional intelligence definition sits there and I want to develop my emotional intelligence, how do I know where I sit on a scale? Mm. And what are you measuring when it comes to emotional intelligence? That's a really interesting question. Um, If you take 100 people randomly off the street and ask them the question, how emotionally intelligent do you think you are? Most people, interestingly, about 80% of that sample will say, I'm a bit above average. I was just actually going to say, I bet people think they're better than they really are. They, they do, yeah. And so, and the converse is also true that very emotionally intelligent people often underrate um, their emotional intelligence as well. So an assessment can be, for some, one of the most difficult parts of developing your emotional intelligence, whether that be at work or at home or wherever, but it's a really special and crucial part of it to really understand, well, how well do I express my feelings in comparison to others? Um, you know, how self-aware am I? How well do I manage emotions? Am I a John McEnroe or Beyond Borg, by way of example? Um, meaning very expressive about their emotions or would you say having little self-regulation? Uh, well, perhaps a bit of both. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> mm. So what are the categories that you're looking for? I know the first one's self-awareness, isn't it? Self-awareness, yeah. So from a, a measurement perspective there, understanding uh, your triggers, for example, understanding how those triggers play out in, de- in behaviour and how that impacts on others. Um, you can kind of all put under the, the label of self-awareness, if you like. So for me, um, I think about one of my triggers is criticism, particularly of um, at home, how I manage our children. Uh, what is the impact um, of that trigger? Often uh, it's mansplaining and it's defensiveness to my partner, you know, explaining in long-winded ways how she hasn't got the full context here and if she did, she'd see that I'm doing things the right way. Doesn't serve the relationship very well, um, doesn't open you up to learning and I'm just giving that as an example. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, so do you measure the self-awareness, the social skills as well or just the expressive parts? What else is in that? Yeah, so we, we measure self-awareness. We measure awareness of others, so your skill at perceiving and understanding how others is that also called social intelligence or is that something different? Um, no, that I mean, that is one of the big components of social intelligence, yes. Social intelligence and emotional intelligence really intersect and overlap each other a lot. And I think, uh, you know, even Daniel Goleman now talks about emotional intelligence being more self-awareness and self-management and social intelligence being awareness of others and, and being able to influence. And to me, they really still all fall under the umbrella of emotional intelligence where they really originated. But um, yeah, so, so awareness of others, can you accurately predict how others are likely to react to things? So it's not just, are you aware and can you read that somebody's um, annoyed or upset, but do you also understand the sorts of things that trigger other people? 
and and in leadership, for example, can you adjust what you're doing accordingly? So this is kind of awareness of others. The third skill, we call it authenticity, but it's really about effectively expressing how you feel. And I think this is a skill that uh, is particularly critical in life. You know, a lot of us have unsaid stuff in relationships and um, are more avoidant than lean into, for example, difficult conversations, whether that be at home or at the, the office. So there's a real art and finesse to expressing how you feel. And it's something that actually predicts your mortality quite interestingly. Oh, tell me about that. Well, if you if you read books like um, Gabe Maytor's When the Body Said No, you know, there, there's a lot of good evidence to suggest that the quality of your relationships is in part dependent by how effectively, like the finesse you bring to difficult conversations and not having these unsaid things in your life, if you like, in your in your relationships. And emotional expression, you think about some world leaders, for example, who do this well and, and don't do it well. There's plenty on display. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I want to just make sure that we understand exactly the difference between the John McEnroe style of expression of emotions and then this management of expression of emotions. Mm. I would say and I'm hastening a guess here, that John McEnroe wouldn't be considered to be emotionally intelligent in his articulation of his emotions on court, the old yeah, John yeah, McEnroe. The old John McEnroe. I mean, he would argue that he was, it was very deliberate, but I don't believe that for a second, really. I think mm. if you look back at it, it's quite authentically genuine. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, if you take McEnroe as a metaphor for the workplace, for example, it's kind of like expressing how you feel without any regard for the other side, the person on the receiving end of it. And if you are... Um, angry with anger, you tend to create disconnection. You tend to create fight or flight kind of responses um, with other people. So you increase anger or you, you know, you get withdrawal. What you don't typically get is people understanding that you're upset and why and and so on. Does that make sense? So at at the one end of, of expressing how you feel ineffectively is being blunt if you like. And there's a certain American president who's very good at that, doing that as well. And then at the other end of it is expressing inauthentic emotions or not expressing how you feel at all. And I want to use two things there to bring that to life a little bit. Um, you know, some people will say or try to project, for example, being calm and confident because that's what the context requires, particularly in this COVID-19 environment, when they're not really calm and confident. And I think that sticks out. You know, it's like you don't need to tell a horse that you're nervous and anxious about being on its back. I don't know about you, but the first time I rode a horse, it was easily able to pick up on that and it behaved accordingly. And of course, people are the same. So it's um, not being prepared to be vulnerable, for example, and saying, I'm not comfortable with this situation. So it's almost worse to be inauthentic or playing out emotions that you don't feel than it is to be vulnerable and express exactly how you are feeling. Absolutely, yeah. As Brené Brown says, when you shut down vulnerability, you shut down opportunity. When you don't um, open up about how you authentically feel, your staff won't authentically feel and tell you how they feel. And this is, you know, the beginnings of an Enron, by way of example. It's uh, to draw on... Patrick Lencioni's work, you know, it's artificial harmony, fear of confrontation. That's really cancerous in a culture. Can I be emotionally intelligent in one situation, men, and not in another? Is that Mm. possible? Yeah, absolutely. 
I practice being emotionally intelligent with my clients all the time and then find I've, you know, sometimes let myself down at home. Um, I think emotional intelligence, like anything, is very contextual and very context specific, you know, and some people cope well in some situations and not well in others. However, I think any goal in developing your emotional intelligence should be about bringing some consistency to it. You know, how can you be your best self more often? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's an eternal quest, isn't it? It's something we're always, we're never going to reach mm. the pinnacle of this quest to be our best selves. It's just mm. an ongoing activity. Yeah. It is absolutely. in my mind anyway. <laughs> yeah. So what about this idea of emotional intelligence just being about empathy? Mm. So I've got a few clients I said in the beginning and in my intro that sometimes, oh, he's not emotional intelligent at all. She's got so much emotional intelligence. It's like mm. how we pick that up. Mm. But often people get mixed up with empathy. Mm. So if someone's empathetic towards them, oh, they're very emotionally intelligent. But mm. for me, that seems too narrow. Yeah, much too narrow. I think empathy is an outcome of being emotionally aware of others. But if you don't bring with that, uh, you know, your own self-awareness, if you don't bring with that the ability to positively influence the way others feel, for example, then it's just empathy and it's not enough. Like in workplaces, sometimes the, the very empathetic person with that as a limitation, if you like, they do that well but not other parts, they're great at being friends but not great at being your boss. They're not great at being the colleague who can challenge you effectively at times. And so, yeah, emotional intelligence sometimes is construed about how nice we are with other mm. people. And it's not that at all. Certainly an outcome of it is, you know, being very respectful, but sometimes emotionally intelligent people need to be very firm. Think about performance conversations by way of example. You know, a really great doctor knows how to tell you that you've got something that's quite troubling in a way that makes you pay attention to that, understand it and want to do something about it as opposed to um, eggshelling something. Mm, I like this idea that you know, an emotionally intelligent human has boundaries. An emotionally intelligent person is respectful but firm. Emotionally intelligent person has the capability to know, understand what they and others are feeling in mm. a certain context. So are there nuances to empathy? Mm. Can I be cognitively empathetic towards you or emotionally empathetic? Are there differences that we can grab hold of there? I think there are key differences, yeah. Um you can understand how someone feels and really uh, see that, but not necessarily demonstrate empathy. Um, you can be quite supportive for someone, but not necessarily understand them emotionally at the same time. You know, I think one of the things about empathy is we're all biologically equipped for it. We all have the neuromirror neurons and all the, the bits, if you like, that, that help us be empathetic. And I like to think about empathy as, you know, feeling with someone, being able to um, you know, literally sense how somebody is feeling and uh, respond appropriately and accordingly. Mm, so I often think that I don't know how someone feels, but I draw on what I think they might feel and then an experience in my life that might have been similar. Mm. Does that sound like empathy? That sounds like empathy to me. And I think empathy takes you know, deep listening. It involves stealing your own judgments. It involves... Um, certainly paraphrasing back and, and showing that you've understood the way the person is, is feeling. It takes time mm. and takes effort. Mm. Um, one of the things that uh, clients often ask me, you know, how do we demonstrate more empathy? 
And uh, I like to get them to start by watching this little YouTube clip called the Four, I, Four Minutes Experiment. Um, Amnesty International have done a lot of work on it where they just bring people together to sit opposite each other and feel. And, you know, just sitting opposite somebody, um, you do start to feel uh, where they're at, if you like. And it's a great metaphor for how to bring the biology of empathy uh, out and just help your natural empathetic response occur. You know, you've got to just be still, if you like. Um, I, so I talk about taking six deep breaths like you would in yoga as a way of engaging your parasympathetic nervous system and just opening yourself up, if you like, to what's sitting next to you or beside you or across from you. So when we're in a virtual environment, I have to ask this question, when mm. we're in a virtual environment, even though we might be on Skype or WebEx or Zoom, is that harder to pick up the empathetic cues? Because you're talking about mm. the biology of feeling here. I think it is much harder, yes, because that biology is brought about by literally being in each other's presence. So when we're in this kind of virtual world, being very mindful and, and deep listening and, um, you know, slowing conversations down a little bit, if you like, I think is really key to making sure that they're, they're sensitive and respectful and, and meeting people's needs. It feels to me, Ben, like being emotionally intelligent will always be unfinished business. And I'm wondering how we build the muscle. Mm. I think it is unfinished business. You know, the more I study this concept, the more I feel like I'm just at the tip of the iceberg and that's why I love it. And, I think too that you can surprise yourself by just how far you can take things as, as well. But I think there are four key strategies to improving your emotional intelligence. One is what I call thinking strategies. And they might be, for example, defining healthy habits and well-regulated boundaries in your life. So if you've got a time gobbler who makes you stressed, in other words, impacting your self-management, going and creating a boundary around that time gobbler and saying, you know, this is the amount of time that we have today with each other, just by way of example. Or if you look at your phone right up until when you go to bed, that's a bad habit that's bad for sleep. That plays around with your emotional regulation system. Again, bad for self-management. It's about identifying those habits and um, defining well-regulated boundaries around them. So they're thinking strategies. They're thinking strategies. And other thinking strategies could be anything like learning a new language, learning to play an instrument. I mean, anything that kind of brings about greater self-awareness, right? So they're your thinking strategies. The next bucket, if you like, is your physical strategies. Sleep, exercise, diet, uh, all these things um, play a big role in not only our physical well-being, but our emotional well-being as well. Let's take alcohol and coffee. You know, too much of those plays around with your emotional um, system quite a bit. And so, you know, trying to bring alcohol consumption down, coffee's keeping them under 2 p.m. sets you up for a good good night's sleep. The third and perhaps the single most important strategy for emotional intelligence is the relationship bucket. So staying connected with people, leaning into conflict, difficult conversations, learning the art and the finesse uh, of that, and continuing to work on your relationships. And I like to think of relationships in two buckets. One is your close, important relationships. So you draw circles that represent the important relationships in your life. For me, I've got me as a father, me as a partner, me as a colleague, me as a family member. Put the important people in those circles and start thinking about this quarter, what are you going to do to improve that relationship with one of the people there? So as me as a father, for example, um, I wasn't happy with the dinner table conversation with the kids. You know, they take off, they don't want to come and sit at the table. So I'm constantly thinking about little 
ways in which I can make the dinner table conversation more interesting is one of the things that I've been doing in terms of me as a as a partner. Their phone goes into aeroplane mode when work's finished the, for the day, so I can be more present and connected with Georgia and the kids. So there's your close relationships, but then there's also your relationships in community. And Susan Pinker in her book, book The Village Effect, talks about this. You know, it's about centenarians and how do you live to be a hundred. It's about staying connected in community. So do you know the local post person by name? If you walk into the 7-Eleven, do you know the person behind the, the counter or not? Now, they might be a bit, bit tough in today's world, but just generally, you know, we walk around with our phones up like this the whole time, don't we? Um, thinking about putting the phone down more and just nodding and, and even acknowledging other people around you can be a great little step to take in that relationship bucket. And then the final one is environment. Thinking about, you know, different environments create different emotions and different feels. Big business knows this, you know, when you walk into a casino, it feels a certain way for a very specific reason as do department stores and hotels and so on. But what's your environment for success? What's the thing that makes you feel different moods? For example, Paul Keating used to talk about a lot about the use of music before question time as a way of getting himself in the right mindset mm. and the right mood for for question time. Does that make, make sense? So mm. burning sense, mm. um, setting up your office, taking the time to really think about um, the environment that is fit for the context you're in. So that's fantastic, Ben. Thinking strategies? physical strategies, relationship strategies in the buckets. I really like that idea. The last one in the environment, that mm. structuring your environment to get the best out of yourself again. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. So, Ben, this has been fascinating. I think I could keep talking to you for hours. Any last tips for us about building or recognising emotional intelligence? Yeah. My final tip would be to engage in things that make you emotional. In other words, um, you know, that, that press your hot buttons. I talk about the good, the bad and the ugly. I'm quite progressive in my politics. I don't hide that. I love what, listening to Alan Jones in the car on the way to work in the morning. I love watching America's Got Talent or any of the talent shows on YouTube because I'm someone who cries easily and I find that they make, they shift me emotionally. So I would say to everyone out there, what shifts you emotionally and are you intentionally engaging in that? Because if you want to build your emotional intelligence muscle, if you want, you've got to get it activated. Um, and it's just, it's a wonderful thing to do. You know, emotions make us contemplative. Emotions um, make us reflect on life and think deeply. And uh, I think that's one of the, the healthiest things you can do to build your emotional intelligence. Dr. Ben Palmer, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing those insights with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the free Podcast One Australia app, or search Fast Track Podcast. <laughs>